Good afternoon and welcome to Keys to Keeping Compliant, Reducing Risk and Protecting Patient Privacy, a Health System CIO Media Inc. production sponsored by ProTennis. Just a little housekeeping before we get started. My name is Anthony Guerra. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Health System CIO, and I'll be your moderator today. We're looking forward to your participation. You can send in your questions or comments at any time in the Q&A box, and we'll take those later in the program. Just so you see how we're going to spend our time today, first we're going to go about 35-40 minutes with our main panel discussion featuring Jim Brady, VP, Information Security and Infrastructure and CISO at Fairview Health Services, Krista Fink, Privacy Officer and System Director for Information Privacy and Investigations with Fairview Health Services, and Nick Culbertson, CEO with ProTennis, and then we will have our audience Q&A. So let's jump right in. Uh, Jim, let's start with you. Can you give us an overview of your organization and your role? All right. Uh, thank you, Anthony, and welcome, everybody. Uh, Krista and I are in the same organization, so I'll leave a little bit for her to share about our organization. Um, I'm the uh, VP of Infrastructure Operations, Vendor Management, and Cybersecurity. Uh, I'm also Chief Information Security Officer. Um, I've been at Fairview for about two years and excited to uh, be in the role. Um, uh, Fairview is a health system we recently merged uh, with a couple of years ago with HealthEast uh, system. So we're kind of now two combined systems. And we have a partnership uh, with the University of Minnesota Med School as well as the University of Minnesota Physician Group. Um, so we're uh, uh, a fully uh, um, integrated health system uh, and also an academic health system. Um, about 34,000 employees, um, um, we've got a large specialty pharmacy um, business, uh, about 50 plus clinics. I'll leave the rest for uh, Krista, you can fill in that those. But anyway, excited to be here and talk about the topic today. So thank Very you. good, Jim. Thank you. Krista? Hi, I'm Krista Fink. I'm the System Director for Information Privacy and Investigations and the HIPAA Privacy Officer at Fairview. So um, my role is primarily legal and compliance. So I report into the compliance office at Fairview. There's you know, different ways of structuring a privacy program, but uh, we work with closely with compliance. Um, and in, our, in my role, I, we develop HIPAA compliance policies, procedures, rules, and we implement all the aspects of the HIPAA privacy rule. Um, in healthcare, of course, uh, there, that it involves sort of all aspects of the operation. And so we work with teams across the organization, like Jim said, you know, in our academic health center, um, our 10 hospitals and specialty clinics and primary care clinics, as well as other lines of business like pharmacy, um, home care hospice, uh, post-acute senior housing, um, and a variety of other things. So uh, multi-specialty healthcare system. Uh, within, you know, Jim mentioned we have 35,000 employees. We were running the numbers in anticipation of this um, presentation, and we have, you know, over 100,000 EMR users, which is relevant for our conversation today. And and the the volume of records that we have, you know, 6.5 million patient records. So we're dealing with high volume data and a high number of users. Very good, Krista. Thank you, Nick. 
Hey everyone, Nick Culbertson, CEO of Fertennis. We're bringing AI and automation to hospital compliance. Uh, we're a Baltimore-based company that works with over a thousand hospitals uh, to help our customers leverage artificial intelligence to uh, increasing audit capability while using less resources to be able to complete those audits. And I'd say one of the favorite things about my job is being able to talk to people like Krista and Jim um, about their work and being able to automate steps and ultimately reduce risk for the organization. All right, very good. Um, first question, um, Krista, we're gonna start with you. What laws and or regulations must health systems adhere to when it comes to accessing of electronic patient records? Who has the right to access what and when? Are there entities that audit health system EMRs looking for improper access? Or is this something health systems should or must do for themselves? Talk about any outside penalties that may be levied for improper EMR access. So setting the stage here to give an understanding of um, what people need to do and who's enforcing these things. Right. Well, we can talk about health systems and healthcare delivery without talking about HIPAA. Um, HIPAA would be the main uh, rule that, that kind of that's the framework for how you can use and disclose protected health information. And the HIPAA security rule includes a specific provision that health systems must develop policies and procedures regarding access to those records. Um, but of course, HIPAA doesn't cover everything or doesn't prescribe everything you need to do in order to accomplish that sort of privacy and confidentiality standard. So we look to other laws and I think every state has a variety of laws governing different types of data. So it might be, you know, the type of data you're collecting. Is it um, social security numbers? Is it credit card data and corresponding laws? Or it could be you know, other federal rules like substance use disorder treatment records. They all have a confidentiality provision and um, sort of rules around how you can access, use, and disclose that information depending on its classification. Um, what we're seeing in, you know, across the nation are more privacy and security standards. So maybe Jim can speak to this, but with NIST 853 or high trust, we're using a framework for security and privacy that spans across the variety of laws that could apply. Um, and, and that is where you might find more enhanced instruction around access control. Only authorized users may access PHI or other data types. Um, when can you access? It has to be part of your job duties and within scope of your role. So aligning um, access to those job functions. And then, you know, what do you do when, <laughs> when it doesn't happen correctly is kind of the next step. So the, the penalties can be uh, significant. I, you'll see in the HHS um, Office for Civil Rights who enforces HIPAA, their press room every couple of weeks has a new release about entities that have been subject to enforcement activities. Um, it can be monetary penalties, and um, you can even see criminal penalties for uh, HIPAA violations. And then, of course, we're seeing a lot of class action litigation around privacy breaches and um, cybersecurity incidents just based on a general negligence theory. So uh, the, the penalties can be very steep both for the organization and the individual um, who has the access 
So, Christy, you said a, a lot of this stuff is state uh, state based. Some of these regulations. So, when you are a multi-state health system, that can be challenging. Extremely, and with all the M and A activity that happens in healthcare, um, you really want to think about those various state privacy laws. And in Minnesota, for example, um, kids under 18 may seek confidential services for um, sexual health, reproductive health, um, chemical dependency, and related conditions. So we have special privacy protections for minors seeking specific types of services. While our neighbor, Wisconsin, has similar but different <laughs> rules. So you must be a, between or over age 14 to, to seek substance use disorder treatment or, or something like that. So there might be age-based distinctions. There might be data type or treatment type distinctions that vary from state to state. And then we have states like California and Virginia and Colorado that have more comprehensive you know, consumer privacy legislation that you also want to take into account as you're dealing with your um, you know, business operations because it spans more than just delivery of healthcare to a patient. Very good, Nick. Your thoughts? I think it's important to keep uh, think about the um, entire scope here as well, especially with the integration of, of hospital systems like the MA that you mentioned. Um, HIPAA doesn't only apply to covered entities, but also business associates. We are so my organization myself is a business associate. And the communication between covered entities and, and business associates is really important. Not covered entities aren't only supposed to make sure that they're adhering to the HIPAA regulations, but also making sure that they're partnering with organizations that are sticking to those guidelines. And so uh, vendor assessments and, and approval process, I think, is a really key part to this picture. Okay. And, and if I could just add. Go ahead, quick. Jim. Yeah, um, so um, to the point of the business associates, I think the statistic is about 40% of all breaches, reportable breaches are from, uh, you know, involve a business associate. So certainly in a very complex uh, integrated health system like uh, like Fairview, we're going to be, or Health Fairview, where, you know, we're going to have, um, you know, a lot of business associates. So we've recently uh, uh, stood up a, a third-party risk management um, uh, platform, which helps us, uh, you know, better work with uh, the various business associates. So, well, right now it's, it's a challenge because everybody's busy. Uh, and, you know, if a vendor has to fill out a form attesting to, you know, are you compliant with this, that, and the other, they oftentimes, it's a struggle to get the information. Uh, it's very difficult uh, on, the, on the healthcare provider side because we don't have the staff to chase, chase them down and to do it, uh, you know, on an annual basis or not even counting real time, it's, you know, a bit impractical. So the, the, uh, these platforms, it's great because the a vendor uh, can just give their uh, a test to their, you know, to whatever the risk um, or privacy or security um, requirements are, and they can turn that into the platform and then the healthcare providers can access who have access to that platform and the one we're using is about seven or eight thousand uh, vendors participating in it uh, we can just go ahead and use that same attestation so that not only does that save uh, us time but it also gives uh, you know gives us the ability to be more real time and if there you know was something like they had a breach or something like that on the ba side we would be updated and notified so i think there's advancements that are happening in the risk risk management risk reduction that it will help us uh, you know, uh, minimize the number of breaches and 
uh, fines and penalties that we're going to get because we're working closer with our business associates. So these are third-party entities or organizations that certify different vendors. They'll still provide a sort of a stamp of approval, and that saves you time in terms of vetting that vendor's security posture and bringing them on board as a tool that you're going to use, correct? Yeah, I mean, it isn't a certification per se. You don't get a badge or a gold star, but you know the, the, um, the, the business associate will complete the survey, answer the questions, uh, and then it's uh, it's there for the other health systems in, in our case to you know have access to, and then we can go ahead and uh, tweak it and, and you know, ask more questions, you know, verify things that we might be concerned about. But it does save a ton of time and a lot of redundancy, and makes mm-hmm. makes things a lot more efficient. And so it makes it pra- more practical uh, to uh, ensure that the proper controls, privacy controls, security controls, are in place with the business associates. Whereas you know up to this point, it's pretty much it's pretty difficult to try to get any you know we don't have the staff to run run all those folks down very good all right next question jim we're going to stick with you uh beyond industry regulations talk about the policies individual health systems may have when it comes to accessing patient emrs do these often go beyond and are more restrictive than industry regs how are such policies promulgated and what's the role of it in this process Okay, well, I think it's a joint effort. Uh, we have policies that are at the organizational level with uh, our compliance department, the privacy, IT. We, we have uh, IT security uh, policies. Um, uh, and then we do obviously look to HIPAA, uh, but then we're going to uh, we're going to work closely with our um, electronic health record uh, vendors. You know, they, they have recommendations on uh, procedures, on how to, how to apply certain uh, um, standards. Such as uh, what what is the um, what vulnerabilities from a security perspective? What vulnerabilities you know do we need to be on top of? Um, what uh, you know as far as the uh, EHR system itself, where which servers need to be in what's called the DMZ or the demilitarized zone? Not to get too technical here, but mm. <laughs> so that's basically a separate place on the network that uh, we can expose servers you know for any patients et cetera to access. Um, and uh, and uh, um, yeah, so we get a lot of guidance from our uh, EHR vendors. Um, and then uh, also important is uh, we do a annual uh, external third party risk assessment um, every year. Uh, so that one is going to look at the, uh, uh, the HIPAA security rule in this case, and it will, you know, very fine to fine tune uh, fine tooth comb, uh, look and see, are we following, do we have the proper policies and procedures? If we, if we don't have it, then we, it'll be noted. Uh, so uh, that's actually very helpful. Um, and then it will look at, you know, what controls do we have in place? And they're looking more from a lens of, do you have this uh, implemented, either the policy or the controls uh, based on the regulations? And then is it fully implemented? So if it's partially implemented, you don't really get partial credit. Uh, so you either get a check, a green check, you're doing well, or uh, a red X, meaning that you don't have it fully implemented. And so then, of course, organizations will have to, you know, come up with a risk remediation plan. So in the event of a, you know, a reportable data breach, uh, OCR will come in and they'll they'll want to see, well, um, let's see your annual risk assessment. Ideally, it should be, you know, a continuous risk assessment. Uh, and then they'll, they'll also want to know what what are your what were the uh, 
the gaps and then what is your plan to address the gaps and what is the progress and can you demonstrate that you know can you provide documentation for that uh, so then from there they will look at that as you know is there any negligence on the part of the organization and that's where you see fines and things so the, i think that's where we get into a bit of trouble is we uh, you know, we don't actually fully, con we don't consistently document what we're doing and then we don't have a line. Uh, so, um, yeah, so that's a. Yeah, and we are um, more and more reliant on systems and sort of technical controls all the time in, our, in order to mature. You know, it maybe used to be that a hospital could, you know, you knew each other and everyone's sort of under the same roof and only people who access the EMR are employees. Well, with the complexity of healthcare and the decentralized, you know, nature of the way we're arranged, um, and many health systems are arranged, you, you rely on these systems for um, source data, like who are these employees, what are they doing if they're not an employee, what's the right level of access do they need um, if it's an external entity what authority do they have to access the record so is it our business associate is it an independent clinic partner who um, you know we're exchanging medical records with for care coordination um, so there are many different pathways in the how do you implement and we are more and more reliant on the technology in order to identify the users, develop the roles, and implement the, the policies and procedures that we've set. Very good. Nick? I think when it comes to um, adhering to those policies and procedures, it's it, this is a great opportunity for AI to help amplify the, the work. Any workflow that can be manually done can be automated at a higher scale using artificial intelligence, but you can't scale those policies and procedures if you don't have them clearly defined at a manual level. Uh, and so I think the work that, that Kristen and Jim were just talking about is so important. Every organization needs to set their own policies and procedures and incorporate it into uh, NIST guidelines, HIPAA, and everything else. Um, but uh, if they're not set correctly and you start try to, to take an advantage of a, uh, an artificial intelligence tool to scale those procedures, it can identify lots of uh, uh, confusing aspects for the care providers. And um, privacy and compliance and security uh, officials never want to get in the way of providing direct patient care. So again, I just want to reinforce that making sure that you have clear controls, security policies, and um, guidelines on what's going to happen when one of those policies is uh, not followed is really important before using any kind of technology to scale those workflows. And Nick, yeah. have, go ahead, Jim. Yeah, I was gonna add to that. So I, I think it's exciting that um, we have the ability to use uh, behavioral analysis and uh, prediction and uh, um, artificial intelligence, you know, to, to get in front of things that just are simply too difficult to do manually. So I, I think for years we struggled with, you know, trying to at least come up with the bare minimum of compliance when it comes to ensuring that, you know, our, our patient data is protected, that we have their trust. Uh, I think there's lots of services that say the number one uh, trusted profession is uh, um, nurses. Uh, I think providers are, you know, right there behind them so people value you know their healthcare provider they want to trust you know their doctors and nurses etc but if we are not uh, able to demonstrate that we can protect their data that's you know that's a bit of a problem so i think having the 
the technology that can help us do what ultimately um, our patients want done, that's really an awesome thing. Uh, so, you know, it helps us just in, in order to be successful. Yeah, I can't stress that enough, the, the patient trust component and, you know, getting to that policy level is not easy. As Nick said, you know, you really have to implement, like bring it in and just have those discussions around enterprise risk you know, what are the standards? How do we want to make this happen? What are we going to do when it doesn't happen? And it's one thing to have a high level standard that says, you know, we shall maintain confidentiality, but how you do it and what are you going to, you know, as you work through the use cases and you apply it with your risks and you think about factors. I know I talked about, um, you know, financial penalties and sort of regulatory oversight, but patient trust and loss of trust is something that, is extremely significant and it will, you know, drive our patients away. And our employees are patients here too. And they want to know that their information is protected and, and, and really maintained confidentially as they seek services for a variety of things. So, um, you know, that's not easy to quantify, but it, it is a risk factor that we take into account when we're developing our policies and, and engaging in the enforcement of those policies. So, so Nick mentioned that, you know, it's the first step here is developing the policies. You can't lay technology on top of bad policies, right, Nick? So talk to me about, you know, when you've gone into prospective customers' health systems, um, it sounds like you have seen environments that you say, there needs to be work done here before our tool is going to be helpful. Um, can you talk a little bit more about about that dynamic and some of the some of the things you've seen when you go into health systems that you say, this is not mature enough here? Yeah, of course. Uh, I think it really depends on the type of electronic medical record system you're using and what kind of security policies you have in place. Uh, one of the earliest benefits we see to using a tool like ours is not only is it going to identify people who are questionably accessing records, but it's also going to un um, unsurface more systemic errors or, or issues. And, and one really good example is uh, break the glass. Lots of medical record systems have a break the glass function, um, but it depends on how it's set up uh, and, and what types of individuals are required to break the glass. Frequently, when you get a report for all the individuals that break the glass, it tends to be uh, students or individuals that are doing consults from across the organization that don't meet the rule or criteria for break the glass, but are trying to access records appropriately. And so by adjusting a security group or uh, creating a different rule for that break the glass protocol, it might it, it actually could significantly reduce the number of people who have to break the glass to actually do their job and be effective uh, with their care. Um, there's another number of examples like that, but I think it goes back to um, the saying of good data in, good data out, and being able to, to leverage the results to see exactly where issues are across the organization and take a step back and be strategic about the overall breadth of, of risk that the organization is facing. And rather than just trying to, um, you know, play whack-a-mole with, with the issues as they come up. Yeah, and if I could just add to Nick's comment. So th that's awesome, Nick. Oh, that's a great example. Another, uh, you know, I wouldn't say it's a side uh, benefit, but uh, to have a have an, autom uh, uh, an automated uh, and intelligent ability to monitor and, you know, and manage access to the uh, electronic health record, 
Uh, we, and we know that occasionally people get tempted to look, uh, you know, look at records that aren't theirs or what have you. Those, you know, those seem to happen. But to, you know, staff education, just when people know that, uh, you know, that we have controls in place to, that are seeing that, then that helps them be on their best behavior. Not that we need to have Big Brother, you know, that threat, uh, getting people to do the right thing. But people want to do the right thing. Sometimes they just, if there's no accountability uh, and they, you know, there's nothing there, a guardrail, then they they might stray a bit. So I think it's helpful for organizations to, you know, have this, educate the staff on this is, you know, how this is what you can access. And we do all the things, role-based access, et cetera. Uh, but to but to have that and uh, in, in use it in training and education that that helps people do the right thing at all times and it's I think it improves our our ability to uh, respect and handle our patient information. Krista, I want to talk a little bit more about developing the policies that we all said are so important um, as sort of a first step. Can you talk about any best practices or advice you have in how to you know, who needs to be brought together for these discussions and what's the best way to make that happen efficiently? Everyone's time is so valuable. Yeah, so I talk with a lot of privacy officers and you know, what, where do you set this, the, the bar, you know, what do you allow for, for you know, treatment of friends and family? Because I think in the privacy space, we've seen the behaviors, you know, the, the why people do this, why people are looking at records that you know, don't involve treatment. And some of them are um, intending to be helpful. Some of them are just sort of not thinking and others are malicious. And so understanding those behaviors and then uh, we have to partner very closely with human resources on that enforcement piece. You know, this is what the policy says. How do we make this um, actionable from a human resources standpoint? What is the corrective action? And we look through our um, sort of grid of from one spectrum to the other, malicious to sort of unintentional or helpful, um, but cutting corners. How do we we look at those behaviors and assign the, the appropriate corrective action so that we are you know, complying with our discipline sanctions program? But beyond HR, we need those leaders and staff to buy in too. Um, we recently changed our access policy, not recently, it's been like five years now, but uh, it was a big deal, you know, changing the rules around, you know, uh, what friends and family access with permission. And and so you can get into all the nuance of all the different scenarios, but um, it required sort of buy-in from the top. Our chief medical officer worked with physicians and said, these are our ethical standards, you know, treatment of family members. We're not blurring these lines. And that's what it took to get a really solid policy around how we're um, going to enforce rules around access to EMRs. And then when it comes to external providers, you know, we can take a, a lower, can have a lower um, conversation about it. Like you, you can only access for a very limited purpose and you have to be able to prove that we have a patient in common or, you know, you, you want to monitor according to your organization's risk and, um, you need that buy-in from both HR and in our case, it was, you know, chief medical officer and the physician groups. And Jim, when does, when does uh, IT, or when, when does someone like you get brought into these discussions around these policies or is it later? Is it when we talk about 
putting tools on top of the policies that you get brought in? Yeah, I think it's the latter. Um, uh, there are some policies if they're organization wide. I mean, we, we will probably have some input uh, uh, at the senior IT leadership uh, in, involvement. And then, uh, you know, I work really closely with Krista on the privacy side, uh, compliance and audit and legal, you know, so we're all very tightly integrated and we do talk. And if there's an aspect that affects each other's area, we get involved. So obviously we know that uh, IT is one of the main ways we implement the controls for a lot of these policies. And we, uh, we're we using more and more automation and um, and uh, technology to help us do our, you know, do our job. So uh, so we're, we're definitely involved at the high level. Um, but when I, as you mentioned, Anthony, when when there comes comes time to either select a vendor platform or something, and uh, we have you know there's the proliferation of technology now. Is, you know we're, we we as an organization have embraced the digital uh, future, and so we're wanting to uh, you know have all the all have all of those capabilities for our patients and staff. Uh, so we are you know moving ahead pretty swiftly on that. So we you know we definitely get involved at that point um, with IT policies. All right. Very good. Next question. We'll start with you, Krista. How do you prevent and if unsuccessful, identify unauthorized EMR access? So we use um, EMR tools like Break the Glass that were mentioned, but as Nick said, um, many of those are authorized and it, it can be hard to tell on the front end, you know, what someone's doing and why, because healthcare delivery is very complex. So there's a multiple people who are performing providing care, registering patients, you know, placing in beds and um, doing the payment and coding and billing. So there's a lot of people who have potential authorized access. Um, so we spend more of our time on, you know, our prevention efforts are on training and education and um, outreach to our various committee, leadership committees and presentations to our leadership. Our, I see interest across the organization at all of our committees you know, in what we're doing. And so I always try to provide those case examples. This is what we're finding. These are the reasons why people are going into records they shouldn't. Uh, we do a lot of auditing on the back end as well. And that's where you know, some of that AI technology comes in. We have um, something like, what is it? Uh, 978 million audit log events per month. So there's no way that I or my team can go in and look at everything to say this was useful or not, or for every break the glass, there was a, a justified reason that wasn't a good use of our time. And so we want, you know, an audit tool that's that's occurring all the time so people know, you know what the rules are and that they will be enforced. There's a high level of trust that we're protecting that information and that you know, secrets and uh, services aren't, aren't getting out because patients really do care. We talk every week with patients who, you know, I have a friend or a family member who works there. I'm concerned that they're going to know something. I don't, I'm not ready to share my diagnosis. You know, we talk to people individually and we want to be able to provide that high level of confidence that, you know, you're, your treatment is private and in accordance with the rules and the policies that we have. So um, the, the prevention, it's actually ongoing. So we, you know, we train at, at new hire, we train throughout the year, we do a lot of outreach and newsletters and staff huddles. 
but we also learn from each incident. So, you know, as, as the auditing occurs and as we find suspicious activity, we work with leaders and we message about it as much as we can. So in accordance with HR, but we, we use those as examples. Remind your teams, remind your staff that, you know, you can't go and do this or you, you must do this when you're going to enter a record um, so that they know and understand. And with an academic health center, you know, with the teaching and the learning that's happening in our ecosystem, we want to have really clear rules and partnership with the University of Minnesota Medical School so that that understanding about how records can be used for education, how they can be used for research is very crisp. And Jimmy, you mentioned an interesting dynamic that Krista also touched on, which is the very fact that you have a tool and that people know it's being used reduces the frequency of people looking because they know someone's watching. So it kind of helps in that way, too. Yeah, it's kind of like driving down the street and you see the... Uh... The policeman on a motorcycle behind you, you know, <laughs> thinking, please don't flash those red lights. Right. <laughs> but, right. Um, yeah, I think uh, uh, there's well, there's the the, uh, you know, the uh, non-malicious employee who's just, you know, going going somewhere where they shouldn't go. And they're just not using proper discretion and following policy. And then there is the, uh, you know, the bad actor that can get access to the EHR um, and so they can get that through credential harvesting. They can get administered. You know, if they are able to get into the environment, they can work their way laterally. But you know, within the EMR, the the patient privacy monitoring solution does do alerting. And so maybe Nick can add some comments to you know how that tool can uh, you know really help. But otherwise, there's a lot of red flags that we're going to start seeing uh, from a threat intelligence. So we'll look for uh, traffic, uh, you know, network traffic activity. It could be what's called east to west, where you, you know, uh, so somebody or something is kind of passing traffic that normally doesn't happen over the network. So it's basically sending data, and that that's uh, that. So we have to, we have solutions that are looking for that, and then we have. It's called North and South solutions. Uh, so that's where somebody is going to be sending traffic, uh, you know, network uh, data out of the environment to some place on the internet. And so typically when a bad actor does gain access into an environment, they want to set up what's called a command and control center. Um, so they're going to want to, you know, a touch bases with the with the mothership, so to speak, or the fathership. Um, and so, you know, so we have uh, threat intelligence uh, technology that's going to be looking for that pro proactively. But maybe, Nick, you, if you have any comments on, you know, within the EHR, you know, obviously we, we need the intelligence and the alerting based on act, uh, behavior that normally wouldn't happen uh, by that user. So any comments on your end? Yeah, I think um, just two comments. One, hospital workflows are extremely complicated. And again, not only can um, Chris and her team look, not be able to look at every single access log, but they're so complicated, it, it's even really difficult to understand which patterns of behavior are indicative of inappropriate activity or malicious intent versus appropriate treatment patterns. And so, again, this is a good aspect of, of artificial intelligence to be able to see that big picture and tie the information together. And I've noticed those subtle patterns. Uh, the other thing that I wanted to reinforce is that HIPAA is not intuitive. Uh, especially when you're a clinician that's trained to do whatever you can to be helpful. And so sometimes that means 
making the assumption like, oh, I, I, I'm trying to be helpful. So I'm going to look into my family member's medical record to be helpful and help them understand their care. Well, that is technically without written authorization that that is uh, in violation of, of, of HIPAA. Um, and so the best way to prevent those type of human errors is education. And Krista mentioned that Fairviews does a lot of education, not just when employee starts, but throughout the year. And that continuity is important. But I want to tie this back to what Jim was talking about. A lot of the tools that we use are opportunities to provide that reinforcement training as well. Um, if you broadcast out broadcast training out to everyone, so many people are going to absorb it and retain it. But you can also target training to the individuals that are showing the early warning signs uh, or, or going down a path that might lead towards greater risk for the organization. Uh, and that's another great application for AI, not just waiting for the incidents to happen, but looking for those early warning signs and saying, this is the person that may need to go to HIPAA train again, or this is the person that needs to um, you know, sit down with the, uh, with the privacy office or, or their manager to remind them about their obligations when they're accessing PHI or PII. All right, very good. Um, let's go to our next question. Um, and we're going to start with Krista. Uh, if unauthorized EMR access occurs, how can it be stopped as quickly as possible? And what are the next steps? Describe how a post-breach investigation works, including any steps to determine if it was malicious. Talk about the difference in remediation for malicious versus non-malicious breaches. And describe any escalation of disciplinary action for repeated breaches by the same individual. Mm -hmm. Sure. So um, with the tools that we have now we see, you know, what is that risk score and how do we assess the risk of harm? You can kind of understand the behavior. And this is where your privacy office, you know, analysts and privacy officer comes in, in handy. So promotion for the privacy office. But, you know, you, you have these subject matter experts who know kind of what steps need to happen and who have those tie-ins to IT. So if it's something really egregious and very concerning, we can shut off access immediately. Um, if it's something, you know, where we're understanding the behavior, it's that, that helpful family member who is, you know, not, not adhering to the rules, but they probably have an explanation or there's something that just doesn't quite make sense. You know, this is out of your usual workflow. Why did you go into this one over here when you normally do this? Um, we can use those, we can handle those in a variety of different ways. And so it might be just direct education or what, you know, we saw this, that you did this. Um, can you explain yourself or don't do it again? Or here's your direct education. Here's the policy on what you may and may not do. And that's very effective at, at letting people know that we're looking and, and, but you've assessed some risk in there as well. So your privacy office has looked at it and said, okay, this, this is sort of what they normally do. And, and you're using a real subjective analysis and HIPAA, you know, breach assessments are very subjective. They, they, they look at things like you know, who's the person who did the access? Are they trained on HIPAA? Who, you know, what's the extent of the PHI involved? And so there's, you know, a four factor test that you look at to determine the severity. Um, and the tools give you, give you that help as well. So I think, you know, Every organization does it differently, but there's some spectrum of malicious intent, turn it off. You know, you may even need to consult law enforcement depending on what, um, what has happened. 
And then there's this other behavior that we see and that the, you know, the tools pick up on and that we see all the time, which is how do we train and educate people about where these boundaries are um, and make sure it doesn't happen again. And that can take a variety of forms. Um, and you, you said, talk about the difference between malicious and non-malicious and, and we do see it, you know, we see it a lot more in the, uh, trying to be helpful or not, but with, when it comes to friends and family alone, you know, it's not always helpful. <laughs> Sometimes those are those personal connections that drive, um, malicious intent. So there have been criminal sanctions. Uh, people have gone to jail for looking up their ex-spouses and bringing it to a custody dispute. Um, sometimes there's a financial incentive. It might involve looking at records um, to pass them off to your friend, you know, friend or a pharmaceutical rep or someone who is a motor vehicle accident attorney looking for plaintiffs. It could be any number of those things that you have a financial gain, um, you have a, a personal vendetta against someone, or it could be trying to help someone. And so we take those all into account when we're looking at what those, um, what the appropriate corrective action is. Um, and for repeated breaches, you know, there's a very low tolerance in this space and amongst, you know, privacy field, we just you can't take the risks or we can't accept the risks of allowing this to continue to occur. So knowing who the repeat offenders are and um, you know, taking appropriate action for repeat offenses is something that we, we take very seriously, I think, across the industry. And that's where you work, you work very closely with HR, right? Yes. To come up with those policies. Very good. Jim, anything you want to add there? Yeah, I was just going to add to the to the malicious um, type of a uh, breach. So typically, if it's a, a one user uh, type of uh, um, event, then uh, you know, obviously, we have access. Krista mentioned we can go ahead and turn their access off, but we do have uh, through Active uh, through Active Directory um, a very you know layered approach to role based access. So we've we've got uh, we can. You know, uh, we have multiple groups uh, through uh, our the way people access it through, which is our uh, um, Citrix environment. We can also, uh, and let's just say something is you know really bad. It's a bad actor. It's it's not a disgruntled employee or it's not an individual. But let's say something is, you know, it's it's larger than a, a breadbasket per se. Not that a bread, whatever breadbasket here applies in this case, but <laughs> anyway, uh, we have the ability by department, by you know, if, if somebody's in nursing, if somebody's a physician, uh, we we can turn a site off, you know, Epic. So we have we have a lot of controls uh, that we we can layer uh, if it's going to be more than one person in the event of uh, you know a ransomware attack or something like that uh, we'd want to be able to obviously contain first um, and then uh, you know lim minimize the spread and the damage and then from there we could you know look to open things back up but so, so i think that's that's helpful i think most healthcare systems you know um if they're if they're on the uh if they're epic users and they're on the epic honor roll then you know there's certain criteria that epic recommends so most of us are doing that. And if there are Cerner or other uh, EHRs, there's basically similar types of models that people try to strive for. So there's, uh, there's uh, and then of course, 
if there is, uh, if it does look like it's a cyber event, then we'll bring in, um, you know, we'll bring in, a, we have a third party that we, forensics company that we'll, we'll engage with to look through the logs and audit and things of that nature, uh, just to make sure that, you know, we haven't missed anything. Very good. Nick, anything you want to add? Uh, just to tie um, both comments back together, uh, you know, Jim has a lot of controls to be able to uh, block access or introduce sanctions. And Chris has talked about sometimes even need to get law enforcement involved. When you go to those steps, you want to make sure that the data you have is, um, uh, it, it, you know, 100% is accurate. And so it does go back to the uh, importance of having um, really good confidence in your e-discovery approach to make sure the data you're looking at is uh, you, that you actually know what happens. It's nothing worse than pulling someone out of uh, direct care to have a conversation with them where then they say, no, that wasn't me. I was not working that day. And then you have to go back and actually then look again and see what you missed. Um, with a tool like ours, one of, one of the uh, most interesting stories that I hear is uh, individuals are able to go into those audit logs and see the, the minutia of the individual's behaviors. And typically what you can see when someone does go into record they're not supposed to is that it's between appropriate activities. And an individual will say, no, that wasn't me. I walked away from the workstation. I was doing other things. Someone else used, someone stole my password. And then you show them there's no way because there was half a second between you doing this and doing something else that you were supposed to do. And you told me that you did this. Uh, and so having that uh, ability to take the information, sit down with them, have that conversation and show them the information so that um, uh, you're confident you know what happened and essentially just walking them into walking themselves into a corner. Good advice. Very good point. All right. Next question. Uh, Krista, we're going to start with you. With staffing challenges impacting almost every department within a hospital, what should compliance and IT departments do to ensure they are protecting patient privacy with limited resources? Well, you have to rely on your stakeholders and that sort of education piece and the knowledge. So in the example, you know, where you walk someone in and you're showing them, you're also reminding the manager and, and other staff that we are tracking this and we are looking at it and, you know, using that to your advantage so that people, there's just a widely held belief that everything is, is monitored mm -hmm. and that, you, know, you you have to that's a deterrent effect um but you know we rely a lot on our you know, site liaisons or compliance liaisons across the organization to help bolster these you know code of conduct and compliance uh, standards and you know technical standards so you know, if we if we have a rule, it needs to be known and followed by everyone. And since we're decentralized and uh, you know we're not all under the same roof, you have to rely on you know building those controls into the workflows, you know helping people understand the concepts as much as they can. And from a privacy office operations um, standpoint, we want to make sure that we're focused on the things that really matter. So letting go, you know, you can't look at everything. You cannot review every access or every break the glass. It's just, it's not um, useful. It, you want to focus in on those high risk um, opportunities that you have to educate and train and, and really audit. And OCR, the Office for Civil Rights, wants to see that you're doing, you're engaging in ongoing risk analysis and that you know where your PHI is, you know what your risks are, and you're doing something to 
you know, continuously improve and manage that. And so focusing your efforts on those high priority areas is, is necessary, just given the resource constraints and um, limited staff. Krista, we talked about the, the desire or the benefit of publicizing or making known the monitoring technologies there and the, the effect that has of people not looking where they shouldn't be looking. Do you also want to let it be known and publicize, so to speak, the consequences for a first, second, third offense? Do you want everyone to know that as well? Yeah, so we try different things all the time. So we used to, you know, our HR used to say we, we cannot share, you know, if anyone's been terminated, <laughs> but people want that and it is very actionable and impactful. So, you know, with our internal compliance committees, we are, I am very transparent about, we saw this many terminations in the last quarter due to privacy violations and this is what happened. And I think it's very useful that people have those actual tangible use cases. Um, I have heard, you know, from different privacy officers, oh, you would never do that, or we always do that. And so there's, you know, variety, I guess. But I think that, that transparency is helpful because it helps promote that culture of confidentiality, that culture of trust. So um, it's not that we're big brother looking, even though we're looking, it's, it's the, the reason we're looking is to promote privacy and promote patient trust. Jim, anything you want to add there? Yeah, I think Krista nailed it. Um, you know, I mean, even if we, uh, I mean, we need the, that, that EHR record is our, is belongs to our patient uh, at the end of the day. And so we need to have everybody understand that it's not about following the rules and making your job harder by a bunch of extra clicks or having to log in or this and that and the other. It's, it's really valuing um, you know our communities and our patients, and respecting what what they are what they are wanting and needing. So I, I think that's the ultimate message that we you have to you know we have people coming and going in the organization. So it's a constant education thing. So I, I don't think we can you know I don't think that we can say enough about that. Uh, you know I think the an, an automated platform <clears throat> to be able to help us understand what behavior is not. Uh, appropriate and calling that you know calling that out is helpful even if we uh, like you mentioned there are staffing challenges typically that's either the organization is uh you know challenged with funding or else we don't really have the ability to get the, the appropriate level of skilled staff right? it's going to be one of those two and even if anthony you were able to give a fair view uh <clears throat> 20 billion dollars and say you hire everybody you want i don't know that we have enough but you know it, i don't even know if you could possibly stay on top of all the you know every record of it that's being accessed and, you know it's just not possible <clears throat> so we definitely need the technology platform to help us uh, but there are things that we can do as organizations to look for ways to you know to get more funding uh, we're doing some work with uh, you know more automation like what can we automate in order to save dollars uh, you know, so there, uh, so I think that's a great and just leveraging technology is something we can do to help us so that we won't be as challenged, you know, staffing wise. But, you know, with the COVID surges, et cetera, you know, a lot of us have to staff up. Uh, and so the when you're bringing in temp nursings and nurses, et cetera, they're, you know, they're much more expensive. And so th those are budget challenges. So we definitely have the budget challenges. But I think, you know, I think we just need to work together and use technology uh, to try to get to the uh, end state that we're looking for. Nick, anything you want to add? 
Well, Jim covered everything I would have said about uh, the advantage of artificial intelligence and automation. But the only thing I would add is um, often when I talk to customers during the, uh, the the challenging times that the pandemic has brought, I, I encourage to to consider looking at the actual policies that they have in place too, because. Artificial intelligence can help automate a lot of workflows, but sometimes a tweak to policies can actually help open up that automation even further. And I'll give an example. Um, uh, a lot of organizations have a hard and fast rule that if you look up uh, any family member, um, you know, be, be it benevolent or malicious, that is a termination uh, event and, and there will be consequences. We also know the nursing um, uh, shortage and staffing is really difficult for hospitals right now. And so if you're coming to HR and saying, I have all of these people I need to terminate, that's just not an ideal situation. And so, um, you know, one, one technique to consider is to say, well, for first time offense, if it's benign and if it's not a malicious event, you know, you're going to get, you know, you're going to get notified, you're going to get educated, you're reminded, and it's a second offense that is going to be a termination event. And in a small tweak like that, we've been able to show that you can actually eliminate the, the, the volume of violations that are occurring in the long term and prevent both repeat offenses and first time offense because you're spreading awareness, you're increasing education, uh, and you're reminding individuals the responsibility, but you're also not putting more burden on other parts of the organization by, um, you know, uh, bringing all these incidents that's just not practical to um, result in termination at that, the volume that it may be occurring. All right, we're going to go with a light, we don't have much time left, so we're going to go with a lightning round of last thoughts, and I will give you a little framing for each one of you. Uh, Jim, uh, for your CISO colleagues, um, best piece of advice on this topic? Yeah, I would say for those that are not heavily involved with uh, privacy and compliance, and this is a great opportunity to, uh, you know, understand that part of the um, of the. Uh, with the organization, so partner closely with your compliance, uh, legal, uh, uh, audit, um, and uh, the medical groups. Uh, so just to to uh, be able to give you better context and really understand what the strategic imperatives are and how we can uh, work together to improve um, our patient privacy. Thank you. Krista, your framing is, uh, I'd like you to speak to your fellow chief privacy officers about working with um, CIOs and CISOs. Yes. Um, well, you can't do it alone. <laughs> so HIPAA used to be very much in the legal, regulatory policies, procedures, drafting and committees and approvals. It's just very much moved into the technology, you know, actually how you implement um, you have to partner very closely with CISOs and CIOs to understand how your EMR even works, you know, what are people doing in it, and then how can you build privacy into those workflows and, um, and things. And, and just understanding that data has to move from you know, outside your walls. or <laughs> it's, That is this, the way it is now, and you can't just uh, treat a patient with a paper medical record and then move on with your day. It's, it's, that information has to be shared and um, you wanna make sure you shored up all those controls so that privacy is protected along the way and you've mitigated your regulatory and legal risk and reputational risk. Very good, so Nick, your, your framing is this, uh, folks like Krista, 
generate uh, this interest in a health system. They bring it over to folks like Jim, who then hit the market and have to figure out what tool they may want to buy for this. What's your best advice to those who are going to go shopping? Uh, my best advice is I think a lot of the vendors, if you walk around hands or other trade shows, a lot of them talk about using artificial intelligence. And I think you need to be very um, studious and, and, and um, to discern what they mean when they say that. I, I've seen other vendors say AI and they mean um, automated intelligence, which I think all software is automated intelligence. And so asking the right questions of a vendor, when you see artificial intelligence, what do you mean? What goes into your artificial intelligence? How can we trust it? Is it black box? Like what, what are the features you do? What's the training data that's been used? Can I talk to your data science team? I think those things are really important because this ultimately comes back to trust and with privacy, if you can't trust your data and if you can't trust the results that are coming out of it, we're talking about patients' information and their, and their well-being. Uh, and so it's really important that that trust occurs from end to end. Excellent. Well, that's about all we had time for today regarding continuing education. You can use the final slide in this deck uh, for your CEUs. You'll get an email when the on-demand recording is ready for viewing. If you want to sponsor an event with us, you can reach out to Nancy Wilcox from our team and go to our website to register for upcoming webinars. With that, I want to thank our panel. Tremendous conversation today. Jim Brady, Krista Fink, and Nick Culbertson. I want to thank Pro Tennis for making this event possible and you, our attendees, for coming. And with that, everybody have a wonderful day. Thank you. Thank you.